we have completed our study of the book of Revelation. And so the ongoing question is, well, where do you go next? What's the next book of study where we, that we look at? And so a few months ago, I started kind of praying through that question and looking through, where have we been over the last 15 years since I've been your pastor? I just had to sit down and write, what books have we been through? And in the Old Testament, we have been verse by verse through the books of Genesis, Ruth, Psalms, Hosea, Jonah, and Habakkuk. And in the New Testament, we've been verse by verse through the books of Luke, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, the very first one 15 years ago, almost 15 years ago to the date that we began that study. But Philippians, Hebrews, 1 John, and now Revelation. Every one of those books points us to Jesus Christ. And yet still, we need more because God has given more. And there's no wrong answer. Where do we go next? What should be the next course of study? But this morning, we will begin our next sermon series that will take us through the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And for our purposes this morning in this introductory message, our focus will be in John chapter 20. And we'll use this morning to launch us. In subsequent weeks, we'll be going back to the start of the passage going forward. John's Gospel. We're looking at the same author as who wrote the book of Revelation. So we're going to see some similarities in the way that, they, in, in the way that he writes in, in these two books. Though they're two totally different genres, one being apocalyptic literature, the other one being gospel. We're going to see, because there's just style that an author uses that are across the board. And so John's gospel we come to. A book that is so wonderfully rich, so deep. A book that, you know, I've contemplated preaching through before. I'm sure you've read many times before. This is that book that oftentimes when we're talking to an unbelieving family member or friend, we'll encourage them, read the Gospel of John. And I sometimes wonder, we throw that out. Do we know why John is the go-to book? Do we understand why we're sending someone to the Gospel of John? And it may be you don't know that. I'll be honest, I gave that counsel to people for many years. And I had no idea why John as opposed to Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You know, uh, I mean, if, if all of Scripture's inspired, theoretically inspired, couldn't we send them to any of them? And yes, we could. Why John? Well, I hope that will become clear as we go through the sermon series together. But John's gospel is so rich and so deep, and it is a most important book to preach through because of the purpose for which John wrote it. Now, when it comes to the Gospel of John, and I'll throw this out just by way of some introductory comments on the Gospel, there's a lot about John's Gospel we just don't know. And we'll begin with this. We don't know who wrote it. Now what I mean by that is this, because obviously we call it the Gospel of John. Nowhere within the text of the Scripture do we find John use his name. Nowhere. So when you're looking for the internal evidence of the letter of who the author identifies himself to be, we have no idea who the author was, though we can go back and look at church history, we can look at the style of John's writings, there is no question, no doubt, this is the uh, John, the beloved disciple who wrote this, but as far as the book itself goes, you're not going to find John's name anywhere in the text. That's one thing we don't know, just on the surface. We don't know where it was written. Most likely it was written in Ephesus, a place where John, after the death of Jesus, went off and did some pastoring work before he was put into exile on Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. 
It was, we don't know the date of when it was written. It was probably written somewhere between the mid-80s and the mid-90s, which puts it within about 10 years of the writing of the book of Revelation. So he's writing this some, you know, 60 years after the death of Jesus, and within 10 years when he's going to be banished to Patmos, and he's going to write the book of Revelation. So we should expect this. There's a, a, a focus of mind that by this stage in John's life he's cultivated of what we saw in Revelation we're going to see some similarities and overlap here in his gospel. We don't really know specifically who it was written to. He doesn't identify his audience, though it's pretty clear it was probably Greek-speaking Jews. I say all these things to say there's a lot we don't know about the gospel of John. But there's one thing we know with certainty. One thing with absolute certainty we know, and that is why why John wrote this book, what his purpose was, why he was compelled. He must write this gospel account. You got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which were already in existence. Why do we need a fourth one? This was the last of the four written. Why is he compelled to add to what's already there? We have a crystal clear purpose statement in John chapter 20 beginning in verse 30. Look at the passage with me together this morning. This is our preaching text. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these things that are contained in this book, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John says unequivocally, I'm writing this book so your heart will be captured by Jesus Christ. That your mind and your heart and your soul will be gripped by the majesty of Jesus of Nazareth and you will live upon the greatness of who he is and what he's done. Do not read this purpose statement and, and insert e easy believism into this. That John is writing so that you can believe. Oh, I believe, so I don't need this. No, 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 no. That's easy believism today. Everyone claims to believe Jesus. What John is talking about here is exactly the same purpose he wrote the book of Revelation and gave us that picture of the exalted, enthroned, sovereign king over all during the church age because we need to know and worship him as he is and live in light of that. Rearrange our lives in light of his greatness, his person, his purpose. And in the gospel, it's the same thing. Jesus is not some static figure in history or theology. He is the God-man. He is the all-glorious, all-sufficient one. And if he is that thing, our hearts should be captivated by him and live lives of total dependence and total throwing all of our lives upon the fullness of who he is. That's John's purpose, that we would be true believers. Christ would be all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we commit this time to you this morning, but not just this time, the sermon series that we begin together this morning through the gospel of John. We ask you for your grace.
We ask you, Father, as you have inspired your man, John, to write down his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. You've inspired it, but you've done it for a purpose. That this would be a means of grace in the lives of those you intend to save, to captivate and mesmerize and hypnotize the eyes of faith with the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that we would see him as the all-glorious one that John knew him to be and that you know him to be as your beloved and that we would live lives of faithfulness to Jesus in our worship, in our devotion, in everything that we are and everything that we do. But Father, we can't do this on our own. And just as, as Satan would have loved to have the book of Revelation stripped from our Bibles so that we never ever see Christ as he is, on his throne, so too Satan would love to have the gospel of John eradicated from the canon so that we would not see Jesus as he is. But Lord, you haven't allowed it. But Lord, certainly in our flesh, in our sinfulness, maybe even in this room right now, there may be those who profess Christ with their lips but whose eyes are completely blind to who Jesus is. Oh, Father, do what only you can do. Save the unbeliever. Deepen the faith of the believer. Make Christ all in all. Help us this day. Help us to give ourselves to the gospel of John because of how it points us to Jesus. And help us to fall madly, deeply in love and devotion and conformity to him. Help us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. The title of the message this morning is simply that you might believe in uh, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Comes right from the text. An introduction to the Gospel of John. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And today my purpose is simply to introduce the book to you. My goal, I want you to get excited about the Gospel of John. Though it's those, one of those books you've probably read many times, I want you with a renewed excitement to devote yourself to it. I want to see your soul filled with enthusiasm, not because, oh, Jake's preaching another sermon series. I doubt anybody's going to go that route, but because of what the substance of this book is and the substance of every sermon will be. I want your heart enthused and you to come to this book with great preparation and great expectation. I want you to start praying now. Now, Lord, as we prepare to hear from this word week after week after week after week, Lord, open our eyes to see what John knew so well, what John knew so intimately, the beauty and the majesty of Christ. John was a man who sold everything to love Jesus, to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus because he saw the beauty of Christ. Do that in our soul as well. And I want to encourage you to come each Sunday prepared. So here at the start, before we even get into the sermon for the day, there are a couple of resources. I want to recommend to you, I think will be a great benefit to you uh, through this sermon series. And I hope that you'll use them not just in preparation for every Sunday, but also in preparation for you spending time in the book of John 
uh, in your own personal devotion. So two resources, there's many more, and if you'd like to talk about those, but two that I'll bring to your attention. One of them is a three-volume work. It's part of uh, a a broader um, series entitled Expository Thoughts on the Gospels, written by uh, an Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle, Expository Thoughts on the Gospel, the three-volume work on the Gospel of John. It is fantastic. It is amazing. If I had my way, I wish every family in this church had the entire collection entitled The Expository Thoughts on the Gospels written by J.C. Ryle, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You would, your soul would profit greatly from having the entire set. I'm encouraging you, get your hands on the three-volume uh, uh, John volume. And, and we can do it this way. Uh, we can get them online for about 50 bucks a piece. I'll be glad to order it for you. You let me know before you leave here today. I'll place an order tomorrow. They'll be here by next Sunday. If you would like a, that as a, a resource to use, I could not more strongly encourage anything to your soul. J.C. Ryle, three-volume work, John in the expository. Uh, thoughts on the Gospels. The second thing that may be of help to you, Crossway has recently come out with, Crossway who publishes the ESV Bible has recently come out with what they call a scripture journal on the Bible. What they've done, it's a little paperback, it's very thin. On each book of the Bible, it's a little paperback, little little thing. On the left-hand side of the page, there's the ESV text of the, of the book, in this case, John. On the right-hand side are a bunch of ruled, lined, lines just running down the page. It's a place for you to make notes. Here's the text, and as you're reading, here you can make notes. And you could use this in a number of different ways. One, in your own personal study of the Gospel of John, or if you're one who takes sermon notes, maybe this would be something helpful for you. So, to, And again, those are about $5 a piece. I'll be glad to order them for you, or you can go seek it out on your own. But those are two things, because I want you to be excited <clears throat> and devoted to this study of the Gospel of John, that we would see Christ in this way, These are two resources I think would be of great practical value to you. And if you have questions about any of those resources, let me know. If you'd like me to order either of them, let me know at the end of the service, and we'll get those ordered for you as well. But my desire for you today is to get excited about the Gospel of John. So as we look together at the text that we're looking at this morning in verses 30 and 31, John lays out crystal clear, here's my purpose, here's my great desire for you who read this text, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so the question, I think, for us to deal with this morning is, how will John's gospel do that? How does John's gospel help you and I to believe in Jesus as the Christ? We know that believing or faith is a gift of God. It's not of works. It's not something we do. Faith or the type of believing that John is talking about here is a gift that God gives to his people. Now, he gives that through various means. And one of the means certainly is, and the most predominant means, is Scripture itself. And so God, who has inspired John to write down this gospel account, has embedded into John's gospel certain means to cultivate this belief, these eyes of faith to see Jesus and to love him in this way. What are these means of grace? How can John's gospel help us to believe in Jesus in this way? 
four things. There's more, but for our purposes this morning, four things. And the first is this, the source. The source of John's gospel. Just to put it another way, the author. Now here's what I mean by that. Again, the author of the fourth gospel, John's gospel, is never named. But within the gospel itself, we know this. He was an eyewitness. This gospel writer was with Jesus. He saw what happened with Jesus as it was happening. He heard the teaching of Jesus with his own ears. In in John chapter 1, verse 14, the author says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. What's the author there saying? I've seen Him with my own eyes. He was an eyewitness. In John chapter 19, verse 35, the author is speaking of seeing Christ crucified and seeing the blood and water, water pour from His side. And he says in the next verse, He who saw it, has borne witness to it. And his testimony is true, that he's telling the truth. What's the author saying there? I saw the blood flow. I saw the side ripped open. I saw the blood and water. And I'm telling the truth. I saw it with my own eyes. So there's internal evidence that the author was an eyewitness. He saw Jesus in the flesh. He heard him teach. He saw the miracles. He saw him crucified. Who is this one? Well, the tradition of the early church is unanimous, and that's no small thing. If you're familiar with the early church, you're familiar with early church councils, which is nothing more than the early church getting together and fighting and disagreeing on everything. And for the early church to be unanimous on anything is nothing short of a miracle. The early church is unanimous that the author is John, the beloved disciple, the disciple of Jesus, one of Christ's inner circle. Now, that's important when we think about the source of this gospel. Along with Peter and James, John was one of the three inner circle that sometimes when Jesus went off to do certain things, instead of taking all the 12, he would take certain of these three, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, come with me. Come see this. Come join me in this. They saw things that the rest did not see. And I think it's a mark of John's humility. Humility. That he does not name himself in this gospel. One thing we know about John, the author of Revelation, he was consumed with Jesus. It was all about Jesus. And John, it appears to me, he doesn't want any, any of the focus upon himself. He's going to reference himself in very clear ways, so much so that it becomes clear. This is the Apostle John, but he just doesn't throw his name in there. Why? That's humility. That Christ would be all in this gospel. One commentator writes about John. John is the beloved disciple who leaned in close to the Lord at the Lord's Supper. You remember that? The Lord's Supper, one disciple. It's John who stood at the foot of the cross as the Lord hung dying, and who was trusted by Jesus with the care of his own mother Mary. That's huge, isn't it? When Jesus lay dying there, or on the cross dying, there's his mother. Who does he give responsibility of his mother to? To John. This is his beloved disciple. This is the one, we might go so far as to say his best friend. And on the morning of the resurrection, who's the first one? Word comes, he's not in there. 
They all go running, but there's one who sprints past everybody and almost throws everybody out of the way. He's the first one there to look in. Who's that one? That's John. John doesn't name himself, but John is one who knew Jesus probably better than anyone else. He knew him more intimately, more personally, and that's why John's gospel is called the intimate gospel because it's written by one who probably had more intimate knowledge of Jesus than even his own parents. That's why this gospel is a powerful means of grace by God to cultivate belief, to cultivate faith, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Lord, because it's written by not just some crazy lunatic, not just somebody who heard about these things, but by an eyewitness who also happens to be Jesus' beloved disciple, I'm going to go ahead and say it, his best friend, his inner circle, who knew Jesus better than anybody. The words of the Gospel of John, they're not legend, they're not myth, they're not the memories, mixed up memories that have been passed down from generation to generation. Like the eyewitness saw it but didn't write it down, but he told his children. And they didn't write it down, but they told their children. But they're the ones who wrote it down. You know that they're going to mix up some of the facts. But this is not that. What we have here are the words of the one who loved Jesus more than anything. He saw Jesus. He was there. He heard the words. He saw it. He had a bond with the Lord Jesus closer than any other human being. What better source could we have? You want to know Jesus? Let's get into the eyes of John, the beloved disciple. That's what we have. That's the first, how does this gospel cultivate faith? Because of the source of it. The apostle John. Secondly, how does the Gospel of John cultivate believing on Jesus as the Christ? The signs, not just the source, but the signs. We read in chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, what John is writing here is saying, I could have literally told you, about dozens, maybe hundreds of signs that Jesus did, things that even aren't in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I could have laid out many different things. I'm only giving you a selection. I have selected only a few. There are many others. But I, out of all of them, have chosen these because these are sufficient to turn your heart away from disbelief to belief, from, uh, to turn your heart away from not being captivated by Jesus to being captivated by Jesus, to, to not living upon the fullness of who he is to living upon the fullness of who he is. These are enough that you might believe. And one of the great features of John's gospel are these signs, which really amount to the, the miracles that he did in his public ministry. Most of these miracles run from chapter 1, verse 19, through the end of chapter 12. All right, so if we think about the structure of the book, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18 is the prologue. It's the introduction. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? 
1, 1 through 118 is the prologue or the introduction. Chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 12, verse 50 is, we might call it, the book of signs. This is where he lays out the signs that he references here in verse 30. He did many other signs that are not written in these books, but these in chapters 1 through the end of chapter 12, this is where the signs are. And then chapter 13 through chapter 21, 21, we might call it the the book of glory. This is where Jesus uh, meets with his disciples in the upper room. They have long conversations. Jesus talks to them about about what's about to happen. He talks about the church. He talks about heaven. He talks about their responsibility. He talks about what he's going to do. He goes to the cross. He dies. He raises from the dead. That section from chapter 13 through all the way through chapter uh, uh, 20 is focused upon the, the book of glory, Christ's ministry, the disciples. And then chapter 21 is the, uh, the epilogue or the, the closing of the thing. Now, within the book of signs, which runs from chapter 119 through the end of chapter 12, we have the signs that John has chosen. There are seven signs. There are many that could have been done. I chose a few. I chose seven. Could have chose six. Could have chosen eight. I chose seven. Why? Seven, to the Hebrew mind, is a symbolic number of fullness, of completion. Why does he, is it only coincidence that he chooses seven? I think you'll see in just a moment. It's not coincidence. He chooses in the mind of the Hebrew the number of fullness and perfection and completion, saying these seven are a sufficient compendium of all of them. We could go through all of them, but these seven are sufficient, are full and complete in and of themselves to give us the fullness of Christ's person and work that you might believe. Now, this is where we think about, again, in the book of Revelation, When John wrote that, the significance of the number seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven visions. And we talked about there the danger and where we've gone wrong is we've tried to make that a chronological number. One has to happen, two happen, three, four, five, six, seven, and then the next. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. No. Seven has always been representative of a full reality. And that's how we handle the book of Revelation. And why would we do that in that way? Because in John's gospel and in a lot of Hebrew literature of the day, that's how they wrote. It's a symbolic of fullness and completion. And by saying, I could have written more signs than you could have, but I'm only choosing seven of them. He's saying these are representative of the whole, of the perfection of Christ's work. And what are the seven that we find in the book of signs? Number one, the changing of the water to wine. Number two, the healing of the nobleman's son. Number three, the healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethsaida. Number four, the feeding of the 5,000. Number five, Jesus walking on the water. Number six, the healing of the man born blind. And then number seven will be the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Seven miracles. Verse 30 says, he did many others, but these are perfect, a perfect representation that you will have enough here to see and to know Jesus and who he is. 
What is a sign? What's, what's with these signs? What is a sign? A sign is something that points to a greater reality, isn't it? It's something that points to a greater reality. Let's say you're visiting a foreign country. And let's say that on this particular day, you're trying to get to this town. I don't know what town, this town to visit. But this is your first visit to this country. And so you leave your hotel, you're in a rented car, and you're driving around. And you're, you've got a map, and you're looking at it, and, you're, dri- and you, you, you're lost. You're trying to get to a destination, but now you have no idea where you are. You have no idea what the next turn needs to be. You ever been there before? It's frustrating. I see some smiles back there. Like, they've been there, done that. And then you see a sign, and there the sign has the name of the town that you're supposed to be at. Oh, how you rejoice. Just, nothing has ever been as glorious as that sign, is it? You see it there, and you see the name of the sign on the town, and thank goodness it's there. Now you've got direction. Let me ask you this, though. When you see that sign, it, it points you to where you're trying to get to. Do you stop the vehicle? Let's get out of the car. Let's take a selfie in front of the sign. Let's take our picture with it. Do you do that? Or do you get out of the car and say, uh, please tell me you don't do that. <laughs> or do you get out of the car and say, and worship the sign. Oh, we've arrived. We've done it. Thank you. No, you don't do that. Why? It's just a sign. It points to a greater reality. What you want is what the sign points to. What you want is the town. And likewise, the same thing happens with these signs that that John reveals to us about Jesus. To take that same illustration, imagine you're taking someone, someone's badly injured. Maybe you're on vacation and you need a hospital fast. And and you're driving around and you're looking for one of those, you're trying to find a hospital and you can't find one. And then you come upon one of those hospital signs, you know, with the arrow, the H, and it's pointing this way. You're so excited. Are you going to stop the car? Let's get out. Let's celebrate this hospital sign. No, you're, just, you're glad to see it, but you're running on to the greater reality, what your heart needs, what that body needs, the hospital. As we look at these signs, they point us to the beauty, the majesty, the fullness of Christ. And this is a real problem in the church today. We live in a day today where there's a a great emphasis on signs and wonders. People talk about signs and wonders and experiences. And and I need, I'm not experiencing this at church, this sign and this wonder, this experience. We're fascinated by some feeling. Signs are never the end all. The signs, insofar as they're true signs, are given by God to point us to the greater reality, to Jesus. Our desire is not, I want the experience. The the desire is, I want Christ. I want the fullness of Christ, His person, His work. And that's what the signs are intended to do by John. And so as we come to these seven signs in in this gospel account, our question will be, what do these signs point to? What are they saying? What or who can change water to wine? Who must this person be? Who can take just a couple of fish and a couple of loaves and feed 5,000 people? What is this telling us about this man? Who is it who can walk on water? I've been to the beach countless times. You have too. We walk in there. 
Who can walk on water in the middle of a storm? Who must this man be? And just simple kind of, well, that's Jesus. is great, but it's not enough. Those signs tell us deeper, richer, fuller things about who Christ is. No Sunday school answer will suffice in this study. We want the fullness of Christ, of who he is. That's what the signs point us to. All of them are saying, Jesus is the Christ in this way. And it's going to fill in that blank. Believe on him. Look at who he is. Look at what else would you turn to? Who else are you going to hope in? What is greater than this? Do you see? That you might believe, not just with, oh, I know Jesus is the answer to this question. We all know that. But that we would be captivated and rearrange our lives in light of that. So two reasons so far. How does the gospel of John cultivate belief? The source, John being just that intimate, close friend of Jesus. These are his words. This is what he saw. This is the Jesus he knew. He's the one we want to hear from. And two, the signs that he saw. I saw these with my own eyes. Could have given you dozens more. These seven, symbolic of the fullness. These seven. This is the fullness of your king. Live upon him. Believe he is. Number three. A third reason for believing in Jesus as the Christ in the gospel of John. The sermons. The sermons. John's gospel is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those Gospels are often called the synoptic Gospels. And that word comes from, they give a synopsis, if you will, of Jesus' life. Uh, so they begin, by and large, with a birth narrative or you know, some kind of a genealogy. And they give a synopsis of Jesus' life. John's not like that. John, there's no birth narrative in John's Gospel. He's not trying to give a synopsis. Where does John start his Gospel of Jesus? <laughs> not even on the earth. In eternity past, before there was an earth. That's where Jesus' story begins. In eternity past. John's gospel is unique from all the others in that a lot of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have, John just leaves out. He just leaves it out. Again, there's nothing about his birth. There's nothing about his baptism in John's gospel. There's no reference to his temptation in the wilderness. There's no reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. There's nothing about that agony in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's uh, sweating drops of blood. None of that's mentioned in John's Gospel. It's just not there. But what he does put in there has been specifically chosen to accomplish his purpose. The signs and the sermon. When you look at the sermons that we see, we're going to see in the Gospel of John and you compare it with the sermons we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, <coughs> Jesus is often preaching in very short, crisp statements. Things like, uh, why take a speck out of another man's eye when you have a beam in your own? Right? That's a message in and of itself. Or what does it profit a man if he gains uh, the whole world but loses his own soul? That's, that's a, a message of Christ. But one of the characteristics of John's gospel is he gives us longer, lengthier sermons of Christ. Long, what they're called in John's gospel are discourses. 
long discourses, messages of Christ to his disciples and to his people. And anyone want to venture a guess how many sermons of Jesus that he puts into his gospel? Keeping in mind what we've seen in Revelation, what we know to be true, and what we've seen of the signs. Anyone want to guess the number of sermons? Seven. Did Jesus preach more than seven sermons? Why seven? Why not six? Why not eight? Because seven has always been, through biblical history, a number symbolic of a greater reality. These seven that he has chosen are representative, symbolic of the fullness of Christ's teaching. And what are the seven? Number one, the sermon on being born again in chapter 3. That's with Nicodemus. Number two, the sermon sermon on living water in chapter 4. The sermon on the Son and the Father in chapter 5. The fourth sermon, the sermon on the bread of life that comes in chapter 6. The fifth sermon, the sermon on the light of the world that comes in chapter 7 and 8. The sermon on the good shepherd, that's sermon 6 that comes in chapter 10. And the sermon on the oneness with the Father, sermon number 7, also comes in chapter 10. And what you and I have got to feel is the great privilege that is ours to be able to listen to Christ preach. You have your favorite preacher, John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, whoever. You have your favorite preacher, your go-to. None of them. None of them can hold a candle to Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the paragon of preachers himself, can't hold a candle to the preaching ministry of Jesus. And in John's gospel, Jesus preaches to us. Jesus' own words. He preaches to us. What a privilege we have to listen to these wonderful discourses. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And that's what Christ preached. He is the word. Christ preached the word to his people, and that's what we have here. And that's why the sermons cultivate belief in Jesus. In every sermon, Jesus told in Luke's gospel, every sermon he preached, all the Old Testament was about him. Every sermon we come upon, I promise you this, will not be a sermon on morality. You can make it that, and generations have done that. Jesus' intent was not that we live moral lives. His intent was we know him and the fullness of who he is, and we love him. And by looking unto him, we become conformed to him. We will live moral lives, Christ lives, as we become like him. The source, the signs, the sermons, all of these embedded in John's gospel to bring us to faith in Jesus, to believe, to see, to be captivated, to rearrange our lives upon him. And then finally, the Savior himself, the Savior himself. At the heart of the gospel of John is not John, the human author. At the heart of the gospel are not seven signs. At the heart of John's gospel are not seven sermons. At the heart of uh, John's gospel, the purpose of all of those things is Jesus Christ.
Jesus Christ. The book is all about him. Everything is honing in on a person. And we just finished Revelation. Would you expect the author of that book of Revelation, who was not writing a book about the end times, but was writing a book about the glory of Christ now, over the church age. Would you expect the one who wrote that book when he writes his gospel account to write anything other than it's all about Jesus? I mean, of course not. He's, he's consumed by Jesus. And that's why the gospel of John is all about him. And the Christocentric emphasis of the gospel of John is seen particularly in the I am sayings of Jesus. In John's gospel, we have the signs, we have the sermons, and then we also have John capturing I am statements about Jesus. You tell me how many you expect you're going to find. There are seven. I promise you I wasn't crazy when we went through Revelation. I told you we interpret Revelation on the basis of Everything we know, everything that's come before it. Were there more I am sayings that Jesus? Absolutely. Why seven? Symbolic of a perfect representation of all that Christ claimed to be for his church. Seven I am statements. The, word, the, the very concept of I am comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament name for God himself, who is the great I am. Christ now takes the name of Jehovah. And claims it as his own. And in each of these seven I am sayings, there's a statement about his person, and then there's a promise of what that person is offering us. So, for instance, we're, we're just going to kind of walk through them together. And when we get to these, we will go through these same things together. The person and the promise. In John chapter 6, verse 35, the first I am statement. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That's the, the person. And then the promise, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Beloved, we're a hungry people. You may not know it. You're a hungry people. We're hungry. We're hungry for things. We're hungry to fill a void. We're hungry for love. We're hungry for acceptance. We're hungry for peace. We're hungry for family. We're hungry for meaning. We're hungry for fulfillment. We're hungry for the perfect church. We're hungry for this, that. We're, we are a hungry people. The problem's not that we're hungry. The problem is that we are trying to fill that appetite with what we think will fulfill it. When Jesus in the I am statement says, I am the bread of life. If you are complaining about everything in the world, feast on Jesus. He's what satisfies. He's the one who will never let you down. He's the one you have nothing else to complain about when you have Jesus and you are feasting upon him. All the other things I want, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need, I need are met in him. Do you see? And this is why John is writing that you would so believe in Jesus that the people of God would not be a complaining people, but a captivated people, a full people. On Jesus Christ. The second I am statement comes in John chapter 8. Again, the claim of his person, I am the light of the world. And then the promise that comes with it, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Oh, this is so good. 
because we all feel like we're walking in darkness. In our own battle with sin, darkness, and I, I just don't know where my life is going. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know where I should go. I don't know what club I should join. I don't know this, that, or the other. I'm so confused. I feel like I'm in darkness. We make it a far more complicated than it has to be. Jesus says, I know you dwell in darkness. I'm the light. I'm the light. Come to me in faith, and I will take away your darkness. Everything you think you need, everything you think, I just don't know. There's a question mark at the every end of every sentence. Christ is the exclamation point. He's all. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The third one, John chapter 10, the statement, I'm the door. And then the promise, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's picturing the unbeliever here as a little sheep, helpless, hopeless in a big, bad world. And he simply says, what safety can the unbeliever find? Come to me. Enter the sheepfold. I'm the door. And I'll close the door behind you. And you'll be safe. A mighty fortress is our God. The fourth one. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. And then the promise, he lays down his life for the sheep. He's talking about Calvary there. The fifth one. John chapter 11, verse 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then the promise. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What a promise. A promise of everlasting life. The sixth one, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then the promise. No one comes to the Father but by me. Through me, Jesus says, you can have God. You can have the Father. He will dwell in your presence. You can have His love and mercy poured out upon you. But it can only come through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets the Father but by me. We'll look more closely at that. And then the seventh of the I Am statements. I am the vine, John 15, 5. I am the vine. And then the promise. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is who bears much fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. Abiding in Christ produces conformity to Jesus Christ. All of these things together in the Gospel of John make up the content and are the means of God used by the Spirit of God who inspired John to write this in this way to cultivate greater belief and affection, and hope, and joy in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John is the source, the signs, the sermons, the Savior. Here's something we have to know before we get into the Gospel of John. It is not possible to read John's Gospel and remain neutral. It's just not. It is not possible to read John's gospel and shrug your shoulders. 
and kind of say, well, you know, I get it, but you're either captivated by this one, the way John was, or you've rejected him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. Either Jesus Christ is this one who John knew, who did these signs, and those signs pointed to the greater reality of the depth and the greatness of who He is. And Christ is the one who preached these sermons about who He is. And Christ is the one who makes these claims upon His person and these promises. Either He is this one, and praise God, I have found what my soul has been looking for and everything else, and I've been so grouchy and grumpy and, and just un, unsatisfied and uncontent. But now I've found Christ and He is all, I forsake all else and He is all, or I reject Him and I'm going to continue to pursue other things. You either love Jesus of the Gospel of John or you hate Him. You cannot be indifferent. Your affections cannot remain cold. You either love Him or if you don't love him this way, Jesus himself will say, you hate me. You either worship this one with renewed passion and fervor, or if you won't bend the knee deep in your heart, Jesus is going to say, then you're counted among those who wanted to murder me. There is no neutral ground. And this is not me adding commentary. Jesus is going to say these very things. It's either one or the other. You either believe on him with the eyes of believing faith that he is all, or you don't. Something remarkable about John's gospel, never once does he use the word faith. Now, that may not sound remarkable to you, but you know when you're studying, that's almost unheard of in the New Testament. A book where he does not even mention faith faith. But what John does do is he uses not the noun for faith, but the verb to believe. And he uses that some 100 times. You know the difference between a noun and a verb, don't you? A noun is very static. A verb is what? Action. That's not by accident. For John, believing and living upon the greatness of Jesus is an action. John isn't just interested in us having a dissertation on Jesus. He's not interested in just having right knowledge about Jesus. He's not interested in us having right words applied to the attributes of Jesus. His concern is believing, action, that we're living upon, worshiping, giving him all in all, because he is all in all. We might say John's purpose it's not that you just know about Christ, not that you talk about it, but you live out the greatness of the God-man. Perhaps I'm speaking to some of you this morning as we launch into this study, and you're not yet a believer. And you've been with us for years. That would not be surprising. Not because I'm making judgment upon you. Throughout church history, when Jesus walks among the seven churches in Asia Minor, Every one of them consider themselves to be Christian, and yet Jesus points out that not everybody is. That's why I say it would not be surprising. If maybe you're here this morning and the grace of God is showing you, I don't love Jesus in this way. I don't know Jesus in this way. And if you can't be neutral, 
Well, then the handwriting's on the wall about where my heart is for Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you, expose yourself to this gospel. Come here each Lord's Day to listen to these messages prayerfully, seeking Christ. Ask God to do what only he can do, to bring you to belief, the eyes of faith like we see all throughout the New Testament. Many of you here this morning are on the other side of the spectrum. You'll say, well, Jacob, I'm already a believer. I do believe in Jesus. Uh, The Gospel of John really is not going to have anything to say to me. That's a lie from hell. Don't we all need to believe more deeply, more richly, more vividly, more transformingly? All of us do. If you are a place where you're content in your spiritual life, you need to stop and look and examine. We are in desperate, and the gospel of John is everything we need to grow deeper in our love for Jesus. We need more faith. We need a deeper faith. We need Jesus to be more real to us, more vivid to us. We do believe, but we want to believe more. We want to apply it across the board. We want to be more faithful. We want Christ to dominate our lives. We want Christ to change our lives. We want Christ to be everything to us. So whether you're here this morning as an unbeliever or a believer, Leon Morris says this about the book of John. I like the comparison of John's gospel to a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. Get that imagery in your mind there. A child may wade and an elephant can swim. It's both simple and profound. It's for the veriest beginner in the faith and for the mature Christian. Its appeal is immediate and never-ending. And I'll close with this quote by R. Kent Hughes on the Gospel of John. He says this, In John's account, believers, that may be most of us, Believers find an ongoing source of expanding their concept of the Savior's greatness. You need that this morning? I do. The serious student of John will find that each time he returns to the gospel, Christ will be a little bigger. Something like Lucy's experience with the lion Aslan. Have you you read the C.S. Lewis story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? As she gazed... Uh, at, at Aslan, the lion, his large, wise face. Aslan says to her, Welcome, child. Aslan, she says to him, You've gotten bigger. To which he replies, That's because you're older, little one. She replies, You mean you haven't gotten bigger? And he says, I have not. But everywhere, every year you grow older, you find me getting bigger. And that's how it should be in the Christian life with Christ. Each year, as the older you get, you ought to be deeper and richer in your understanding and clinging to Jesus Christ, in your love and devotion to Him. And if you're not where you need to be or want to be, and none of us should be, the Gospel of John is the means of grace to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ.